Well, I remember what seems like an awful long time ago, all the way back to January 2020. Do you remember that? About 10 years ago? Uh, but we had uh, so many people as, the, as this year began in January 2020, as Kevin mentioned, we had so many people who were talking about this is going to be a year of vision, this is going to be a year of clarity, you know, playing off that whole idea of 2020 vision uh, idea. And, and so we, we had these hopes and we, these dreams. We had New Year's resolutions, we had prophetic words, we had companies and organizations with slogans that were all about that. And then we got something far more different than any of us ever anticipated, didn't we? And so it changed. Um, it's been different than we imagined way back in January uh, of this year. It's been a year that has been filled with lots of upheaval, confusion, and uncertainty for sure. Uh, and it's, it's easy to pick on the bad things, there's no doubt about it, the hard things and the fearful things of 2020, but there's also been so many good things. And we know that, and we've been celebrating that from time to time. We have to remind ourselves of some of these things from time to time. I was just thinking of a few. I mean, there's been increased community spirit as actually people are getting to know their neighbors. People are spending more time uh, outside their house and connecting with people that live around them. Uh, I've heard many stories, and we see that people are, are helping engage with the elderly and the vulnerable in different ways and helping with those in need. Uh, pollution is way down across the globe, as you know that, and you see places in the world where often they're marked with all kinds of pollution, and they've had the most clear air that they've ever experienced. It's like the, the earth has had a moment to breathe as everybody has kind of stayed put a little bit more. Families are spending more time with each other. Uh, that's typically a good thing. Hand washing and personal hygiene are on the rise. That's not a bad thing. It's not bad to wash your hands more. Uh, that's a, a good thing as well. There's been a surge in book sales. People are reading more than they have in the past. There's been working from home, flexible work schedules that people have enjoyed. R discovering lost hobbies. Some of you have learned to knit. Others of you have learned to bake. Others of you have learned hobbies that you had way back when, years ago, that you're picking up again. Apparently, there's also been wars that have stopped during this time, like in countries like Yemen and Syria, apparently. So there are many interesting things that are good with this season that we're in. But, but no, no doubt there is also much that is painful and difficult about this year. And one of those things is that as a people, as you think about the world and as a people, uh, we have experienced probably more division in many ways than we have in times past. It seems like unity is in short supply, whether it's from political division, uh, in terms of political parties and, and elections that are happening in different places, obviously uh, in the states right south of us that's coming up really soon, we've seen that kind of division. Uh, whether it's division around issues of racism and policing, and we've seen that in the news, and we've been talking about some of those things in the previous weeks. We've seen division in, in just how to handle and how to even respond to the pandemic. You know, and we see that, uh, again, across the globe. And so it divides people. And it seems like there have been things that have continuing to divide people and, and making the divides wider and wider. And we know that the myriad of questions and issues and challenges that are being faced by the world are also being faced within the church as well. Also, this idea that there is good news and there is bad news is also part of what we see in the church also. And the unity question, what are the things that unite us? What are the things that divide us? Those questions, those issues are, are there in the church 
as well. And there would be both good news and bad news on that front. So let me start with some of the bad news when it comes to the church and this unity piece. As you look across the church in North America, and especially for those of us who are kind of immersed day by day in the work of the church and thinking about the church and reading about the church and connecting with people across uh, the city and this country and beyond, we know that there have been many challenges in the North American church landscape. There's been uh, lots of division with all the changes and isolation and uncertainty that's been there. Uh, people have been feeling disconnected from the church. We have people watching more online. We have people who now more than ever can just go and explore churches all around the world. You can check out anything that you want. You can just be in isolation, make your faith all about an individual kind of faith. Um, and so people are often feeling alone at times, sometimes uncared for. Some people are frustrated with so much change when it comes to the church, that everything is changing and it's just too much to take in. And other people are frustrated because there hasn't been enough change in the church during this time. It's like, what an opportunity that God has presented us with. Why aren't we changing more? Then you have you know, people who are anti-maskers who feel like the church has given up to fear. We need to stand up for our freedoms and have more faith. Trust God more. Or people on the other side who are fearful to gather in any form and struggle with gathering at all. I was reading an article recently, and there's a, a pastor and an author named Kerry Newhoff who wrote this article, and he, it was written to pastors, and he says, pa uh, why are people so angry at you, pastors? Now, I don't know if you're all angry at us. Maybe some of you are, but here's what he said. is He's experiencing that lots of pastors are facing lots of anger within their congregations at times. And he said, 95% of the people's problems have actually nothing to do with the church. And oftentimes when we go through times that are intense, it's, it's easy to blame the church or not meeting our needs or helping me grow or changing enough or so on and so forth. But oftentimes it can be also unresolved issues in our own lives. And he likened it to even road rage. And he says, you know, normally what happens in road rage is not because of the incident that happened while you were driving. It's usually because of some unresolved stuff in a person's life that something just triggers. And he's saying maybe it's the same with church rage. Secondly, he says, you know, distance and isolation makes people ruder and bolder. I think there's truth to that. As we're all online more, for some people online more than we ever would care to be. But when we're online and we're kind of behind a screen or we're at a distance or we're not in person, it's easier to be more pointed and more sharp and to say things in ways that we maybe wouldn't normally say. And then lastly, he says, you know what, we're all probably, especially pastors maybe, a little bit more agitated than we like to admit. I think there's probably some truth to that. And so even in the receiving side of things for all of us, I think we sometimes see more agitation there in our own lives. But hey, here's the good news. And there's lots of good news. There's lots of good news in the gospel. There's lots of good news in the church. That is the vehicle that God has put in place to be proclaimers and livers of the gospel. And so there is a solution and there is incredible hope. And that's some of what we're going to look at today as we look at this text in Ephesians chapter 4. And sometimes when I think of hope, I think of uh, like one of the things I love to do in the morning is just to watch the sunrise when, when things go from completely black and dark. And suddenly the light just starts to appear and you can't even see, especially if it's an overcast day, you don't even see the sun necessarily. But all of a sudden everything just starts to get lighter and lighter and lighter. 
And for me, that's kind of like a picture of hope that God constantly breathes into us by his spirit, both as individuals and the church. And, and Paul points us to, in Ephesians 4 uh, about some good news of hope and for unity in the church. And as was mentioned, we're, we've been in the book of Ephesians this fall, and we want to look specifically in chapter 4 for this next month. And I want to just read verses uh, 1 to 6 of this uh, chapter. So Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You know, Ephesians is a wonderful manual for the church. It's like this incredible textbook of here's how to be the church. And it's timeless. It's this message for the church that spans across all generations and all cultures and all contexts and gives us a way to think about the church and a way to be the church that is powerful. And it's like a proclamation to the church to step into its calling to address all kinds of issues, to embrace its identity, to embrace the power that you have in the church through the power of the Holy Spirit, and to grow into maturity. And this is truly a good news story. That regardless of what is going on around us, regardless of what we might be experiencing, even in our own hearts, in our own kind of gut, what we're experiencing maybe in our family settings, what we're experiencing in our broader culture, that regardless of that, that there is a good news story, that the Spirit of God is at work, and there is so much hope in the church and for the world. And so our unity as a church has a significant role to play. Our, our, our unity matters, and that's what Paul is talking about here in this first part of chapter 4. You know, Ephesians, in many ways, confronts our individualism. And our culture, as we know, is very bent on individualism. And for a lot of us, our tendency is towards that over and over again. And yet, Christianity is a shared faith. It's a faith of community, of common unity. And so our faith is to be seen and to be lived and to be experienced together with other people. And so to be in Christ is not just about me and Jesus, but it's about me and Jesus in community. Now I was thinking of that, that song that, I love this song, In Christ Alone. And what that song isn't about, it isn't about, yeah, me and Christ alone. That's just my faith, me, me and Jesus. No, no, it's about Christ alone is the one who our faith is found, our hope is found, and our salvation is found in Christ alone, but together as the body of believers. And so we are called to have this common unity as the people of God. And if you think, if you're familiar with Ephesians, and many of you would be familiar with the spiritual armor text in Ephesians chapter 6, a few uh, chapters beyond where we are today. But even in that text where Paul is talking about the spiritual battle that is real and he's talking about putting on the armor of God, we often read it in the context of individual. And we think of it just as individuals. And yet the truth is, is that it's also to be read as corporate because we do this together as the body of believers. So even as you think about the shield of faith and in, in the era that he would, Paul would have been speaking to, the armies of that time would have taken their shields and they put them on the ground. There were these tall shields that they put and they locked them together one after another, after another, after another, after another. And it creates this impenetrable 
barrier that can withstand any oncoming army. And so we need to read these texts again in a corporate sense, not just in an individual sense, about how is God speaking to us as the church corporately. So let's look at these verses again just for a minute. In verse 1, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And Ephesians 4 is a turning point in this text that we've talked about throughout this fall, where Paul is moving from a theological narrative of of saying this is who God is, this is the story of God in chapters 1 to 3, and now he's making a shift in chapter 4, and he's talking about, therefore, this is how you are called to live. It's now an exhortation. And and Paul is writing as somebody who is all in. I mean, in fact, he's writing from prison. So here's a guy who is all in to this story, and he's saying, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you, And the the therefore that he's talking about is everything that has proceeded in the first three chapters where he's talking about this incredible story of God and he's saying, now here's now how you need to live as the people of God, not just as individuals. Here's how to be the church. I urge you then. It's this exhortation. And Paul is pointing to the fact that our faith has an ethic, a way to live that reveals our calling, our identity, and the gift of grace that we receive from Jesus. And the you that he's talking about, he says, I urge you then, the you that is there in the original language is a plural you, not a singular you. So again, it's talking corporately. I I urge you as the church, I urge you as the body of Christ to live in such a way that you live out your calling, your corporate calling, As you see, we're to live out our individual calling in the context of a community of called people. And we're to live out our communal calling in our individual lives. And so he says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And in many ways, this is like a subject topic heading that now could be used for the rest of Ephesians, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. Here's the way to live out your calling. Live a life worthy of your calling. Because that phrase, even to live a life, is really translated, you could, you could translate it to walk. How do you walk this out? And it comes up again and again in the following chapters in the remainder of Ephesians. Walk out your faith. Walk in the ways of love. Walk as children of light. Walk as people who are wise. And so discipleship is really just living a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Walking in the footsteps of Jesus and walking in obedience to him. You see, all Christians have a calling. We've been called by God to this salvation, to the ministry of Christ. And the word of calling comes from this Latin-based word vocatio, where we get the word or the, the word vocation, which simply means a summons or an invitation. We have this invitation from God. And so our calling from God isn't just about our work, but it touches and transforms all of our life. So our true vocation, our true calling is following Jesus into every area of our lives in community. And all of our ethics are to be theologically motivated. Our ethics don't come from rule keeping. Rules don't motivate people to live in any kind of way for any period of time. But our ethics 
are motivated out of understanding who God is and what he has done. That's the basis for our ethical behavior. And so our theology or what we think about God and how we understand him is what is to motivate our lives and how we live. One author, Mark Laberton, says this, God's primary call is for us to belong to and live for the flourishing of God's purposes in the world. Let me say that again. God's primary call is for us to belong to and live for the flourishing of God's purposes in the world. This is our calling. Then in verse 2 and 3 again, he says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Patience and gentleness, those are two words that we see in Galatians 5 where Paul's talking about the fruit of the Spirit and the things that will come out of you as the Spirit of God is dwelling in you and empowering you. Is These things will come out of you like patience and gentleness. They start to grow like a blossom grows on a tree, and then fruit eventually emerges. Like that slow light that grows in the morning, it starts to give evidence all around us and to be seen and experienced by others as the Spirit of God is work, at work within us. And you know, patience is that largeness that values other people enough to give them room and time to fail and to learn and to develop. It's renouncing the tyranny of our own agendas and going at the pace of another. That's what patience is. It helps us to give up our own agendas and actually go at a different kind of pace and putting our agendas at the service of another person. Humility that Paul also draws out here, this is a significant part of unity in the church. He's saying we need to walk with humility. And it's an interesting word in the sense that it's one that is often seen as in short supply, especially in a world of celebrity, but one that is absolutely critical for unity in the church and to live out our calling. There's an author by the name of John Dixon who wrote an excellent book called Humilitas, and he did a massive research project. He's actually a historian, but he combined this history lesson with leadership, and he wrote this book called Humilitas on the origins of humility in Western ethical thought. And he observed that humility is one of those unique virtues that as soon as you think you have it, you probably don't. But then the opposite is also not true, not automatically true anyways, that by not thinking about it, that suddenly then you'll have humility. So that leads you to the conundrum. Well, how do we actually know if we have humility? And so Dixon wanted to research this and understand this better. And so he did this massive research project and wrote a book about it. And, and he describes himself, and this is what's interesting, he describes himself as, as this, a dominance-leaning, achievement-focused, driven personality who has accidentally fallen in love with an intriguing ancient virtue. And one of his best friends, uh, when John had told him that he was doing this research project on humility, said, well, John, at least you'll have objective distance from the subject. Ouch. But his primary thesis was this, that the most influential and inspiring people are often marked by humility. Many of you know the author Jim Collins, who wrote many leadership books. He's a prof from Stanford, and he wrote a book called Good to Great, where they conducted a five-year study of the best companies that uh, sustained excellence over the long haul. And what separated good companies from truly great companies. And in his research, he found 
this really biblical truth emerge, even though they weren't looking for it as a biblical truth in secular workplace. But they found that of the 11 great companies, there was one factor that was consistent in every one of them, and what they ended up calling level five leadership, which was this combination of a steely determination and an attitude of humility. You might call it courageous humility. That these leaders were modest of their achievements, they were quiet, oftentimes they were reserved and even shy, but they had this paradoxical blend of a personal humility and a professional will. So what is humility? It's not humiliation or being a doormat. It's not having low self-esteem or doubting your strengths or achievements or having no strong convictions, no. Humility is the noble choice to forgo your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. So the humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power and service to others and to see yourself as you really are. As we read about even in Romans 12, verse 3, where Paul says, you know, take an honest assessment of yourself. Don't think too lowly, but don't think too highly. But do you have an honest assessment of yourself? And then take your gifts, your strengths, your convictions, the very things that God has given you, and put them at the service of others. And this is what Paul is saying builds unity. So live a life worthy of your call by keeping the unity of the Spirit. He says make every effort through patience, through gentleness, through humility. And then as we see in verses 4 and 6, he says unity is, is motivated by theological oneness. And we often can get kind of fixated around different things that, that unite us. But he says this, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One, uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So he's speaking about this theological oneness that our unity is found in our faith. With those who place our hope in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where we have this common unity of belief. And so to be the church requires a unity that is found at the very deepest level of our understanding of who God is and what the church is about. So how can unity be established? Well, interestingly, it's actually not something that we establish as much as we maintain and keep. Because God himself has established unity. We see it right there in the Trinity of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see it right here in this text of all the ones, the oneness that Paul calls us to. It already exists, given by the Spirit. We just need to value it and maintain it and live into it. And so unity matters because unity and mission go together. Unity is so important in our collective witness. Because unless we evidence our unity, our witness really doesn't deserve to be heard. This mattered to Paul, and it also mattered greatly to Jesus. If you think about John 17, where Jesus is praying, and before he takes this walk to the cross, and he's praying for his disciples and all those that will follow after him, he prays this prayer of unity for the sake of mission. And he says this in verse 20 and 23, 23. My prayer is not for them alone, as he's praying for his immediate disciples. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. 
May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You know, one of the things that builds community is a common demanding task. And a friend of mine just recently shared with me an observation the other day that I hadn't thought of quite in this way, but it was this. It was just that the entire world has gone through this common shared experience of a common demanding task of facing a pandemic and all that comes out of it. And it's been intense and it's been sustained over a long period of time already. And there's no doubt that this year and the events that have taken place have taken their toll on people. We know that it's been traumatic uh, and it's, when it's sustained over a long period of time, it can have a really difficult effect on us mentally. But one thing that's interesting about this and even positive is that as we've experienced this one common demanding task, how might it, aspect, how might it affect the aspect of unity in the world? How might it actually draw us together more as people? And you know, as the church, we have been given the most wonderful, common, demanding task ever of the mission of God, of bringing the hope of God, the promise of God, the truth of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God to the people and the families and the nations of the world. And if we can embrace our theological unity and the hope that we have in Jesus, and if we can make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, we can have an incredible witness that the world so desperately needs of a hope that we can proclaim, of a hope that we can experience and live, and that we can point others to to experience as well. And so I pray that this common demanding task of this, even this year of COVID that we've experienced can be overwhelmed with the common mission of Jesus for us as the church, that it might galvanize us together in common unity for a powerful, powerful witness in the world. Let's pray together. As Janine, if you want to come up to lead us. So Lord Jesus, I just thank you so much for this rich text in Ephesians that talks about unity and oneness. And Lord, we don't take it for granted, and I pray that you would help us to see the unity that you have created and to live into it, that we would maintain it, that we would fan it into flame, that we would make every effort, as it says in this text, that we would make every effort to walk in unity together as the church, and that we would do so for the sake of your mission and your call in our lives. God, that you would help us to not only speak this hope to the world, but to live it and experience and embrace it ourselves that we could live the life of a church that would make an incredible difference in the world today, starting right here in Saskatoon. So God, we commit ourselves again to you and we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.